All right. How's it going, Cherise? Can you turn on your video? I continue I to still need to be able to see your face in order to talk to you. All right. Thanks, dude. It's been really hot in Hong Kong, which sounds like a really yeah. boring like, weather-related yeah, subject. Yeah, but it's health and safety related. I have been increasingly impressed with Hong Kong people's ability to continue wearing a face mask in light of the fact that it's like 32 degrees Celsius, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Despite everything that's gone on, it's everyone's pretty vigilant. Yeah. I was reading a report that said that there's obviously a direct correlation with the number of cases and how early the government of that country instituted and suggested people wear face masks. But I think obviously. Hong Kong's a real exception in the world out of everything because of our SARS history. And it's actually not the law in Hong Kong that you have to wear a face mask. And that's just because they didn't need to make it a law. Yeah. We're just so good at social enforcement of that. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to our listeners, but really, we are working through things, and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash makin. It's such an interesting thing because we were talking about this in the Discord. You know, this is a Discord that involves all our Patreon members. Small plug there. But uh, I'm continually fascinated by how these invisible things sort of govern people in terms of social connections and bonds. Because for sure, even though it's not the law, no one would ever question you. Like if you're a shop owner, if you're a taxi driver, if they were like, hey, you're not allowed in my cab. Yeah or my institution or my establishment if you didn't have a mask. Yeah, 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 right? exactly, exactly. They, they on the other end, were versus in other parts of the world, they think it's like an infringement on their liberties, right? Right. And their rights. Yeah. For all the reasons Hong Kong and Hong Kong people are selfish in a way, I also think they're not in other ways. And it just depends on the mechanism that keeps them bound together. I mean, I'm not... Gonna go into psychoanalysis. That was not my intention. I just wanted to shout out all Hong Kong people slash people in really hot parts of the world that are continuing to wear their face masks. You know, props to you. It's harder when it's hot out for sure. Although some people that say they have a quote unquote medical condition, yeah, like I've been kind of not even a hike, just like there's a hill behind my house, and sometimes I'll walk uh, my friend's dog and. For sure, you feel different going up that hill when you have a mask on versus when you don't. Oh, yeah. But I think that there's a difference between quasi-strenuous activity and just like regular day taking a stroll. I don't know. This is probably not a place to debate that right now. No. Nor am I really that interested in that topic. No, I'm not either. Before we get started, I just want to highlight an email I received from Alex Z. He mentioned that there are some marketplaces that are currently out there. And I actually, I'd heard of these before. I've never used them, but they are marketplaces that uh, 
traffic is traffic the right word it's more like they are marketplaces that sell and trade virtual collectibles mm -hmm. and you know there's a few of them this one in particular is called OpenSea. so basically you can list stuff on here just basically like a any trading platform where you can list your thing uh there's different pillars for i guess the games and or platforms these items and collectibles belong to and you can just trade them and i i had actually forgotten about this i guess for me the i mentioned it to him in email is that my biggest issue is that on the crypto side there's there's a big issue with the the brand building side like i don't think too many people are doing a great job of building brand mm. although it's getting better and what i mean by that is they often fail to understand who their brand is for and how to kind of round it off and and kind of bring together all the minutia to make what is required for a strong brand. So I I appreciate Alex reaching out. Oh, he almost he also mentioned another upcoming project called Terry Labs, T A R I L A B S, and this is another project. I mean, I say another because I've seen a handful of these that are meant to help creators monetize and protect their work. So there's a quite a few of those. I I honestly didn't spend too too much time diving into it but it's more so i just wanted to bring that up and highlight it should we get going sure okay so this week i decided i wanted to talk about hey h-e-y hey is a very opinionated new email service from the makers of Basecamp. so before we get going that's a weird way of describing like an app or a it's service. pretty opinionated. opinionated it is opinionated i took that directly from the verge article that was written about it where all of this information is coming from this verge article is written by casey newton i would have had to refer to an article anyway because i don't have access to hey is currently in invite only stage you can request to be put on a wait list um, but it does open up to the public next month so july so before we get started, before I tell you about what Hey is as an email service, I wanted to ask you, do you have gripes about email? I do, but at the same time, I've kind of found ways to make it work for myself. And what I mean by that is- Can you give me one example? I work out of my to-do task list. And for example, there's built-in plugins where I can just right-click an email and I can just add it to my to-do list, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I can snooze it. And especially with the introduction of snooze, on gmail as of like as a permanent feature yeah. like it's all worked quite well for me yeah. but i also think that my hand was kind of forced because i need and needed to use email so much from the onset of my quote-unquote career that if i didn't build systems then i would have quickly been like snowed under with with emails oh so yeah. i think in general i mean all of us in general i'm not looking for a better option mm -hmm. but i do recognize that if i didn't have as much sort of overview of what I need to do and then found tools to kind of plug in there, then perhaps there'd be certain services out there that would make my life easier. You made a way for email to work for yourself, essentially. Like it by itself would not have been as helpful to you. You had to create a process that involved other services. Yeah. So if you want to like kind of peer into my inbox, it's usually separated into like content emails and response emails but the content emails i filter myself so like i create a filter mm -hmm. so if i sign up for let's say the making briefing yeah i'll make sure i filter it so that it goes into an 
archive, like doesn't hit the inbox, tagged email that's like AAA read me. Yeah. So yeah. every day, every two days, I'll open up that label and I'll just like use my hotkeys, read my those emails and then delete as I go. And if it's something I want to save, I just uh, delete the AAA-read me label and it's archived. But it's not in that sort of like second secondary inbox. You have basically created for yourself a function that Basecamp made on Hey, but you but they kind of had that Gmail to make it do that for yourself. Kind of, sorta. It was built in, but well, no, I it's not that- built in in the sense that like G. Well, you could say it this way: Gmail is not what's the word prescriptive, right? Like they give you a bunch of things that you can use to organize your email, but it's up to you how you organize it. So mm-hmm. someone could do what you've done. Someone can also do something totally different by just like using the Gmail filters and the different like stars and labels system and folders yeah. to like make their own kind of thing. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Basecamp and, and Hey, I just wanted to open with that because I feel like the reason why this was partially the reason why this is interesting to me is because we all use email, like literally everybody of all ages has an email address. We all use email. And I think a lot of people have different types of complaints about it, mm-hmm. right? And I myself have been, because I now do work for InnerTrend, have been trying to figure out how I balance InnerTrend emails versus personal emails versus making emails. I'm not looking for a solution. I'm just commenting that I've been, you know, working on that for the last couple of months. So Hey is a subscription service. It is a platform, not a client. So it doesn't skin something. It is a completely mm-hmm. new email platform. Like it's not skinning Gmail or Outlook, okay? It costs $99 a year USD, which is a steep price tag immediately. You, you know, that's just my first reaction to that. Uh, but however, there are more than 50,000 people on a wait list to try it as of june 15th when this article was published but i believe that actually the projection by Basecamp right now is that they're going to get 200,000 users within the next month which mm-hmm. is better than their projection because the founder of Basecamp, jason freed i'm gonna go with freed sorry because the founder of Basecamp, jason freed had said in this article to casey newton that he thinks 100,000 is a good goal for Basecamp, and Another quote from Jason Freed is the last time I think anyone was really excited about email was like 16 years ago when Gmail launched. Not much has changed since then. We're trying to bring some new philosophical points of view, which is why the title of this article is about Basecamp and Hay being opinionated. And it's because they really believe that not that many people should email you and you really should not be getting so much email. They think email is really only three things. It's things you need to respond to, things you want to read, and receipts. And so each of those three things gets their own place, like designated place within Hey, and then nothing else is welcome, essentially. And they also want to give you like complete control over consent of your email. So every time someone mm-hmm. emails you for the first time, you actually have to manually approve and disapprove of things that are coming in. Uh, so just to give you a little bit more sense of how this works is like they have those three places, inbox, paper trail, and the feed. So paper trail is like where you keep receipts. The feed is the RSS, which is like 
the function you've set up for yourself for newsletters. All of the emails kind of live together, so there's no real archive feature. Unread email just appears at the top, and then read email appears below in reverse chronological order in those three mm-hmm. places. They also have some interesting functions that I would like to try. One is a reply later function that then sets you up with like a stack of your need to reply emails. And they've set it up Mm -hmm. with this idea that you would carve out time to reply to your emails. So they're basically, I think the interesting thing is that their service says there is a better way to do email. And it includes like not just a process for filtering through your emails, but like a suggestion about how your work routine could look like. That email is not something you leave open all day, but it's something that you like do at a specific time for a specific amount of time. Which is something that I recognize too. Like I didn't want my, I don't get as many emails as I used to. So I just created a task, like a daily task in my to-do list and also paired it with this thing called Pomodun, which I mentioned as well in the Discord where it's like basically- Oh yeah, the Pomodoro technique, right? Yeah, so basically what I do is it, it, I mean, this is, this is where it gets complicated. I could see how something like Hey solves it because it puts it all under one roof. But basically, Pomodun, what they do is they pull all of my tasks from my to-do list app into their service, and I can just assign like a little timer. So for example, let's say I want to spend 10 minutes on emails. I just click it, timer starts, it cuts out certain websites as well mm. that I deem as distractions. Like, oh, you can't go on YouTube when you're doing the any of your tasks or you can't go on Reddit or whatever. Yeah. Right? So then, you know, after those 10 minutes elapse, either you give yourself a break or you keep going. But it's kind of the same concept. Yeah, no, it totally is the same concept. I think, I think in terms of work habit, you're describing the same habit that Hay recommends. It's just that Hay's product is built that way. Instead of asking users to like figure out what you've done, you know, like linking... Gmail with Todoist and Pomadun, they just built it into their product, which I suppose some people might say is like limiting, so to speak. But on the other hand, I think Hey is really upfront about it being for a specific user. You know, like their target goal, Jason Fried, of 100,000 is not high, you know? And so they understand that this is like not trying to be an email platform that takes down Gmail, but an email platform for people who have recognized like you do, you know, certain things, certain issues with email and certain workarounds that they would prefer to have and just built into the service. I know this sounds like a commercial and admittedly I've not tried Hey yet and I still think that price tag is high. It works out to about 825 USD a month. I guess I think it's high because I don't pay for email right now. I just use you don't pay for email with money. Ah, sorry. Yes, you are correct. I pay for email with my attention. Yes. Oh, uh, how sad. That- Although I've also found a workaway around that because I use Brave Browser. Ah, uh, well, if we had a conversation about browsers, we could be here forever. When you put it that way, it makes me think like I should pay for an email client. So I stop paying for it with like my eyeballs and my attention, essentially. Because Gmail puts ads at the top of your inbox when you don't pay for it, when it's free. Oh, but I think the other intriguing thing, what I was saying, is that not just that I think it has features I'm interested in, but I 
partially pick this in relation to your subject about ways we work that we just continue doing because that's the way we feel like it's always been. But, you know, can we reimagine it now that we know what it actually is? And that's something that Basecamp said, which was like, hey, we know what email is now. We've been using it for 20 plus years and it's time for something new that's been reimagined mm-hmm. recently in response to the way email is and the way we would like it to work for us. How do you think emails changed in terms of its usage? I mean, I guess they kind of laid it out. It's like newsletters, receipts, and replies. Yeah. But I think that's generally the same as the very early days of email usage for the most part. I don't think, no, I don't think newsletters or receipts really existed. I think receipts, no, but I think newsletters did in some capacity. Mm, Not to the degree I think it is right now. So Hey is really new. Like they developed it in the last two years. And I think Mm -hmm. that as we've talked about on countless other episodes, like the rise of newsletters is, you know, like blogging was in the 2000s. Like it's to be able to hear directly from individuals that you trust and that you want to read. You know, it's not quite like an RSS. It's a little bit more tailored than that, I think. Yeah. Um, There's still the replies part, which is like email that you directly get from friends and family, which they talk about, like one-to-one. It's funny because I said, you know, reimagining how work works, but hey, really feels like not so much of a work product. And I think, This is in response to your question about how email has changed, like since the trajectory of email was like the rise of Slack and things like Slack, like Teams and Discord and all of these other places where we have those work conversations that used to be in emails. Can you talk a little bit about the art direction? Because the art direction is definitely different than Gmail. Yeah, I mean, Basecamp does this with, I think, their other products as well. They've really tried to make it look more fun. It's more colorful than Gmail. You know, things aren't just gray and white. It's definitely less surgical. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's less surgical. It's more human, um, which is weird. I don't really like to say that. Humanistic is the word you want to use. God, I don't really like to say that, mostly because I didn't (laughs) want to trigger you saying humanistic, but then also because I'm not trying to make like a product sound like your friend, but it is just less clinical. Yeah, it has personality. And I think it is appealing. It's really bold to make a new email client that doesn't do the things that we expect it to do and is more prescriptive. Like I said, like it's saying like, this is the better way that we recommend you do things. Not just like, we're going to let users do whatever they want and set them up to like set up whatever features or filters they want. It's like, this is how we want you to use this product. The one thing I will say is that for $100 a year, that's not that much for someone that's going to use this, I believe, primarily for business usages. Mm. Like I don't think the average regular person is going to shell out 100 bucks for this. That's true. But I think that it, you fall, you're now seeing like you're either in two categories where email is actually really important for you because you use it for work or it's something that exists, but it's not the first place you check for communication. No. And you recognize this now. It's like it's way easier to get a reply from somebody off a DM than it is to get them to reply to your email. Oh, yeah, definitely. So like this in itself makes the experience for some people that I would argue is probably 
increasingly smaller as email sort of like it's not in limbo because it's just such a massive thing right but i do think that compared to the past pre-social media pre-dms people treated email differently yeah so like for me it's it's like i look at something like this as more of a convenience thing rather than a revolutionary way to help people communicate i think you make a really interesting point about our attitude towards email versus messaging now i think just without realizing it i subconsciously and i'm sure you too give different types of things urgency and it used to be that email was like the most urgent thing like oh man i need to reply to this email asap but now it's like before yeah like second after a call yeah when you ping me on discord like i think that as being more urgent like an email is more a reference now than anything like emails contain you know bigger files or like lots of links to something um which is more convenient in an email format than a dm but if you wanted someone's attention immediately you would be trying to get like an instant message through some platform this type of service doesn't need to reach critical mass for it to be successful yeah right like i did the math really quick hundred thousand people paying $100 a year, that's $10 million. And this is not like a Gmail play where you need to continually consume data for this to be a relevant project, right? Yeah. Yeah. In reality, you take this $10 million, like I would like to think they can just like maintain it and or slowly grow it because of a different business model as well. We talk about business models all the time in terms of media. And this itself is like the sort of Google AdSense, aka Gmail versus the economist slash the new york times oh you know what is the financial times do you know how much the financial times costs man that is an expensive subscription let me tell you but it i mean it's a b2b expense in my opinion like it says financial times in the title right yeah that's true Um, but you were looking for an example yeah um i was gonna say there are some other things that i think would be appealing to a certain type of person you can do kindle highlights for email so you can highlight parts of any email that you like and then clip them. And then there's like a cat, like automatically all of your clippings are in one place, which I could see being something I would enjoy rather than like having to copy paste things from emails or like take screenshots and put that somewhere else. And you can also do weird things like you can change the subject line without the other person seeing that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen this before. But those are all just like kind of nice little convenience factors. The one thing that I would like to see that I would make my life easier is preserving the functionality of Gmail, but have it in a master filter slash master inbox. So they do kind of have this right now on the app where there's like one inbox that collects everything, but there's nothing equivalent for the desktop or for the browser. Are you talking about Hey so, or Gmail? Sorry, I'm talking about Gmail. Okay. The, Gmail has yeah. one massive inbox on the app. On the app, yeah. It's like all your inboxes combined into one. It's one tab. Mine's not combined. I mean, I can show you later, but... Wait, you <laughs> mean like that, instead of the updates and promotions thing? Yeah. I don't even have that on my app, but there is one thing that is a master inbox for all your accounts. Oh, you mean the all inboxes? Yeah, yeah. Ah... Uh, I don't actually like that, but okay. Yeah, to each your, I don't like to it each because your it's, own. it's not powerful enough. Oh, also one more thing I think that Hey does well that a certain person will like is that it blocks all tracking pixels 
and disables red receipts and other types of surveillance. Types of people such as yourself who used a Brave browser would be interested in. One more quote from Freed, which I think, you know, underlines what you said about their business model. He says, it's the most ambitious thing we've ever done. And also, I would say the stupidest thing we've ever done in like the most positive sense of the word. We're just saying we want to provide an alternative. We want to do some things that we think fundamentally need to be done to solve email. Oh, and one more thing about business model. They are selling two letter email addresses for $999. Oh yeah, that's right. You have to change your email. Yes. Yes. That was actually at the top of this whole subject, which is like, does anyone even want to go through the hassle of changing your email? it's not worth really getting into because it's not hey specific it's like an open-ended question like would you just changing to a different gmail address is a hassle i cannot imagine because everything you use uses an email address i mean that that's just a barrier for any email platform client it's trying to get out there yeah but they do have a little bit of cachet right now like as in it's exclusive to have an at hey.com address so that might also be an additional appeal the more i've talked about this the more i feel like i'm going to give it a go but the the challenge of updating your email everywhere is um just thinking about it is tiring right now yeah i personally would not be that interested in doing it well you have like this perfectly honed system that's like working for you which I, I know other people like yourself as well who have like mastered the way Gmail works. But I actually have to set time every week. Like I have a task in my to-do list that says like when I have free time to like clean up my emails because I'm still like trying to work through all of the junk I get and like sorting out. So I mentioned that part of the reason I picked this is because it connects to your subject about the ways we think we should work and the ways that we could maybe reimagine working. Let's move on to mine then. Let's do it. My topic this week is physical workplaces are important for preventing the loneliness epidemic in an increasingly digital world, says Vitra. In this piece in Dezine, Written by Marcus Ferris, they discuss Vitra's belief that offices play and will continue to play a part in fostering creativity and battling loneliness. It comes off the back of two Vitra-produced e-papers about the future of work. And before I start, obviously you have to say that because this comes from Vitra, who happened to be in the industry of creating office furniture, you kind of take it with a grain of salt because they're not going to necessarily talk about the benefits of not working in an office, right? It's more about how do I get you back in the office in a safe way because it achieves X, Y, Z. I think the self-interest so, is very clear here. Yes, but I think it's still worth highlighting, which is why I wanted to make the disclaimer. Uh, I believe this was a dual effort between the Virtual Design Festival and Vitra. Yes. So I, I compare this to Hershey doing a study on the benefits of chocolate. So, I mean, you can have robust scientific reporting but i think they're also looking for something right yeah so within the two papers there were some very generic and i don't say that in a bad way just like general things to be mindful of like paving the road back to the office uh how to maintain increased hygiene standards 
the prevalence of working remotely, and the action plan for a safe office. I don't want to get too caught up in the individual points, but rather just pull key insights. And what I thought was interesting on the section on redesigning your office, they mentioned that in the future, there'll be obviously reduced density of the office, increased distance, the enforcing of small teams. So I thought this was kind of interesting. It's like you're in an office, let's say there's 100 people, but let's say there's a rule that says you can only congregate in groups of four or less, Mm. right? Dividers between individual employees, aka the cubicle, uh, easy to clean services, easy to clean surfaces. Isn't it funny that we went to an open plan office and the pandemic has brought back the cubicle? I think that's quite interesting. And they do acknowledge that work from home will be an increasingly bigger thing. A point of interest was uh, highlighted where the Swiss Federal Supreme Court issued a ruling in 2019 that suggests that remote workers require the appropriate physical infrastructure, an ergonomic task chair, a height adjustable desk, a desk lamp, uh, Wi-Fi or LAN, noise canceling audio equipment, IT hardware and software. I shouldn't, I should walk it back and say not suggest, but I think it's actually like legally required. That's really great. Yeah, that's pretty dope. Yeah, that Um, is. That's smart move on the swiss federal supreme court yeah within this like i mentioned there's two papers Mm -hmm. uh in the second paper i found a little bit more interesting they featured a column piece from lucy kellaway of the financial times who outlines the the pros and cons of an office she mentioned that offices of the old were great in a pre-digital era they were they were always entertaining and bustling with energy Mm. i don't know if i buy her upcoming argument on why offices deserve to live. She says that modern offices, by contrast, are usually dull, quiet, boozeless, and impersonal with their ergonomic chairs, glass-walled meeting rooms, and half the people working from home. But even so, we need the office as much as ever. The most important thing, which should make the office less an employer's white elephant than its biggest bargain, is that it gives work its meaning. Most of what passes for work in offices is pretty meaningless. And the best way to kid yourself it matters is to do alongside other people intent on doing the same. Well, I don't know. (laughs) I really don't know about that argument, man. Dude, man, I was like, what? Is this for real? Like, this is... (laughs) If this is the reason why an office should exist, isn't this a great reason why it shouldn't exist? This is a great reason why it shouldn't exist. Is she saying that doing meaningless work alongside other people gives it meaning i don't gives you yourself meaning i disagree but doesn't this sort of bring the whole thing into i feel like it's a questionable territory i feel like it goes it buys into that whole like work as your life and like work as your value sort of position whereas like your identity is defined by your work i feel like if individuals find their work meaningless then wouldn't they want to do it from home where they can spend more time with their family and kids. Yeah. That's this one thing that comes to mind. But there's more to this. There's more to this. Okay. I mean, I, ultimately, she says this as a journalist, that without an office, things begin to lose meaning. And that offices impose order and routine for the capitalistic machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the, right. <laughs> thank you for She doesn't say for the capitalistic machine, but yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the second I mean, half of that for the, sentence. She works for FT. Yeah. and you know for me it's curious is that is the office what really binds us and sort of is the invisible force that's like whipping us to like do work no man you know which is that's sad 
sorry yeah. i mean sorry sorry to come down so hard on this but like i've been working remotely as you know with the la team for like yeah. three months now full time and and during that time we hosted unexpected connections and so i think mm -hmm. like the meaning we find is in what you produce together it doesn't come from being in the same room together i still worked with a team that i love and that still carries a lot of meaning but i didn't yeah. need to be physically in a room together with them to find yeah. meaning in that work it might facilitate the interactions and the work but it doesn't define it yeah exactly like i mean i think it's nice to, to yep. see people and eat together and you know just be able to chat by the water cooler etc but the meaning comes from being in a team and working towards some kind of goal and so if you yep. find your work meaningless as a remote worker then the goal must not be clear or your work as a team is not rewarding yeah. That's yeah. my take on that. I feel it's as though we're having a go at... The Financial Times. And Lucy Kellaway, because one of the final pieces is yet another weak argument, which I think is even worse than the previous one. Maybe not worse, but it's like 1A, 1B. She says, a final benefit of the office occurred to me in the past six weeks. It is a great leveler. Yes, the boss tends to get the best view, but everyone is in the same office building with the same common spaces. Contrast that to the inequality working from home exposed in every Zoom conference. Some people work from oak beamed barns in the home counties, others from cramped cupboards. So, I mean, I, I kind of see this, but at the same time, this to me is like a non-issue, right? You, when we started this Zoom call, you had a Zoom background on, right? And I think, and I suspect that it was, well, I don't know if it went as far as being a like, socioeconomic move, but basically... You have an amazing backdrop right now, but you could easily just mask that. If you don't want people to know that you're working from a nice-ass place, just put on like a virtual background. Well, also, right? my argument against this is, shouldn't it be a good thing that we see the inequality? Damn, Charisse. <laughs> but An office is a leveler where we all show up in this place and we put on our office clothing, but... That doesn't tell us anything about where each other is coming from. And maybe it is yeah. a good thing that we recognize, you know, this person is a single mom with two kids and they're part of her home working environment. And, you know, that this other person has socioeconomic privilege and a really nice ass office like that. It, if that's the reality of the situation, I feel like we have to work with that and understand those imbalances rather than like pretending that they don't exist in a sterile office. I mean, it's a lot easier to mask your backdrop on a Zoom call than it is to hide the vehicle you drive into the parking lot as well. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I'm not trying to take down this person. Like, I do accept that some people really thrive in a physical working environment. And they feel like they can express themselves better. They feel like technology is, you know, just difficult for them to work with and to generate ideas. And that has come up, you know, in this extended work from home period as like an issue. But her specific arguments here, like I don't, those are not the ones I would put forward for like why an office should continue existing. Yeah. So I also wanted to pull a piece from Kyle Chaka, who analyzes what could be a permanent change in architecture with his piece for the New Yorker called 
How the Coronavirus Will Reshape Architecture. So I'm going to read a passage from Kyle's piece that I think was quite helpful in just sort of shaping the whole argument. In recent months, we have arrived at a new juncture of disease and architecture, where fear of contamination again controls what kinds of spaces we want to be in. As tuberculosis shaped modernism, so COVID-19 and our collective experience of staying inside for months on end will influence architecture's near future. During quarantine, we were asked to be inside our own little cells, Colomina told me when I called her recently at her apartment in downtown Manhattan. For reference, Beatrice Colomina is a Princeton professor and the author of X-Ray Architecture, which is a book about the role health plays in influencing architecture. The enemy is in the street, in public spaces, in mass transit. The houses are presumably the safe space. The problem is, the modernist aesthetic has become shorthand for good taste, rehashed by West Elm and minimalist lifestyle influencers. Our homes and offices have been designed as so many blank, empty boxes. We've gone, Colomina said, from hospital architecture to living in a place like a hospital. And suddenly in the pandemic, that template seems less useful. Mm. Kyle also goes on to say, unlike the airy, pristine emptiness of modernism, the space needed for quarantine is primarily defensive, with taped lines and plexiglass walls segmenting the world into zones of socially distanced safety. Wide open spaces are best avoided. Barriers are our friends. Stores and offices will have to be reformatted in order to reopen. Our spatial routines fundamentally changed. And at home, we might find ourselves longing for a few more walls and dark corners. So in short, Kyle's piece highlights three things. Domestic space, such as how we'll deal with a space that closes in once you have personal and work-related functions within, which is very important because most people buy a place to live in, not to work in as well. Yep. Uh, the office space, which obviously we touched upon. Mm-hmm. And finally, city space. And here's another quote. As travel has been forced to slow, perhaps a trend towards a homogeneity of space has too, or at least now there's time to stop and question it. Post-pandemic architecture will require a larger shift in attitude and ideology. The architect Stephen Hole told me, I don't see it as something you can handle by changing some aspect of a single space in some city. I mean, hard questions. How have you been feeling in Hong Kong in the last three months as we've seen, you know, kind of architectural hacks rise up? Yeah, so to add some context, very early on when the government enforced social distancing, people in restaurants would set up makeshift barriers. I remember going to a restaurant and people used butterfly clips and they just put a piece of cardboard like sturdier cardboard and just use the clips as sort of like a base at the bottom yeah right there's all this like covid related design slash architecture happening um i think that the the one thing that's most jarring is that and this is neither good or bad thing a lot of restaurants of the modern era i mean not a lot all restaurants of the modern era were not designed under the pretense of having these jarring pieces of uh, architecture and design incorporated right these are solutions to imminent problems that came out of nowhere so like if you were to build a fancier restaurant tomorrow what would that restaurant look like and would you need to start sourcing more design centric barriers mm-hmm. all these other things but on the flip side we often forget quite quickly and i think that's perhaps a concern i think i think some things will stay for sure like the face mask thing will go from, I'm making this number up, like 70% usage to like 97% usage. Mm-hmm. 
right? Like I never really wore a face mask before, but I'll wear one now. I don't mind wearing one to be, um, no, besides the fact, sorry, let me be clear. Health and safety wise, 100% wearing a ma- face mask, completely necessary. I agree with it, especially if we're all wearing one. In terms of long-term usage, I personally don't find it annoying. And there are some things about it that I enjoy, like not having to make a facial expression. Uh, Personally, I have that benefit. But speaking about architecture, I actually kind of enjoy the additional privacy that barriers provide besides being hygienic. I don't know if that's a good thing. I'm just sort of like, questioning myself as to why I find that nice but it is maybe particularly in Hong Kong where you know restaurants are such small spaces and you're you're essentially like eating with the people who are next to you because they're right next to you and so having Mm -hmm. that barrier almost feels like oh I get to I get this tiny like carved out semi quasi private space now but I think what's really interesting is what you said and what this article posits. It's like, how is this pandemic going to influence the way architecture is intentionally built in the future? Like, is this going to tip into furniture trends and interior space trends? The one thing I am considering is that, like I said, people forget quite quickly, but on the same note, it's what is that psychological threshold we need to meet to achieve safety? So to to give an example, like Hong Kong is not in the clear. I think I don't think anyone's going to be in the clear, right? Yeah. From this COVID related stuff, but at the same time, I have seen people engage in like relatively risky activities, but only risky because of what happened in the previous six months. Like for example, one thing when you go and eat Chinese food, you usually have like what they call like communal chopsticks. Yeah. Like the chopsticks nobody eats with. And like I went for dinner with some friends for a birthday. Like I didn't really know these people. It didn't really matter. But it's just that it wasn't something that was registering, even though it was on the table. Like people mm. weren't super diligent about reaching or grabbing food with the communal chopsticks. They would just use their own chopsticks. Mm. And generally there's like rules. Like if it's the last piece, like it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. no one's going to touch that dish. But that's an example. I wonder if people are sharing cigarettes, blah, blah, blah. Like there's a lot of things that are probably things that you would be a little bit more sensitive to now but you know a few weeks after us being in the clear it's as though people have forgotten i mean there's fatigue right like people want to forget you want to think that we're ready to move on and that the pandemic is over but i don't even know what works like do we just keep saying it's not like what is effective here like how do you keep telling people that like the reason we've been in the clear for so long, Hong Kong specifically, is because we've been vigilant, and so you must remain vigilant. That's a is a hard line. Yeah. And then for other places that are not in the clear, that that are quite literally like still you know people in the hospitals like, and folks are getting fatigued. I don't even know like I don't know what kind of messaging is effective anymore. Yeah. I guess all we can hope for is that people who have decisions to make relevant to your topic specifically people who have decisions to make when it comes to office architecture or restaurants and retail architecture that they don't forget you know so it's almost fine 
if a regular office worker or consumer doesn't think as much about these subjects, it's the person who creates the space who has to put it into consideration. Though I guess it's also on the individual person to demand it, to be like, hey, yeah. you need to put this in place. Otherwise, I'm not going to patronize your business or I'm not going to go into the office. One thing I do wonder is that in terms of the work from home setup, how much of our work from home experience is dictated by our workspace. Meaning if we had better workspaces, and this is a twofold issue, right? Number one is the the infrastructure. Number two is the space. Cause like I said, I made that point that not many people are going out trying to buy or rent a home that has both a living and personal component and a work component. Yeah. Cause I mean, for me personally, I would have no issues working from home if I had a better setup. I was just like, gonna I, say, if, yeah. if you don't mind, you know, describing oh, yeah, where sure. you are, like Eugene doesn't have I, I, a single chair in his flat. Like I have a couch. Yeah. Yes, but that's the problem is that you sit on this couch like you're like slouching, laid back on your couch all the time. I, I can imagine that is not as conducive for working. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's I really know. important. Um, I mean, we've seen in our Discord, just to reference that again, people setting up their asking about like chairs and like tech setup. You know, like how have you, you know, have you gotten a monitor? Like how did you and your partner decide like who gets what space? So let's say that a new opportunity arises, but one of the requirements is that you need to report to an office five days a week. How do you feel about that? At this moment in time, I would really want to know how the company is protecting coworkers protecting employees like i think it's okay to go into an office five days a week but there need to be health and safety measures that are you know the ones recommended by the cdc or whichever like governmental health body i think that's the least like i can ask for and to also like make recommendations if i think that their measures are not sufficient so you think that under the right circumstances you would psychologically be okay to report into an office? <sighs> it's really hard to say without going in because, you know, part there's a good part of it that is about the office infrastructure and what the office is providing, like what the company is saying they're doing, and then also like what your coworkers are willing to do. If I then mm -hmm. go into the office and then discover that, hey, nobody is washing their hands ever, then I would immediately become very concerned. Yeah. So, you know, there's only so much that, the space can do and then there are things that are about like the people around you right i like yeah, the office can set regulations totally. like you said about restricting group sizes or doing a b shifts but if employees don't follow those guidelines then you know what are the consequences like will there be consequences so that's all for me sounds good happy to wrap up there if you are interested in hearing more about macon Reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can visit us at makin.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash makin. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at sharice at macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or eugene at macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. -E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.